when the three hurricanes in a row came through Florida, we stopped canvassing and we just did hurricane cleanup. And we had the same T-shirts on and the same canvassers, but they were working in the community to help people. When the hurricanes were gone and they went back to canvassing, the response they got was completely different. It was, oh, yeah, you were the guys who were here that helped us with the cleanup. What are we talking about? Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I got a chance recently to catch up with Steve Rosenthal. Steve is the former political director of the AFL-CIO and former head of America Coming Together, who's founded and run lots of progressive organizing efforts over four-plus decades. In the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, he put together Union 2020, an effort to connect with former and current union members in key states. That was one of the things that helped Biden win. We had a really good discussion about 2020, about what kind of organizing we ought to be investing in in the new election cycle, what he learned from recent focus groups, what sort of policies need to come out of this administration to both help people and pay political dividends, including whether we need to reform the filibuster to get those policies enacted. Steve is a great person to talk to about these matters. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Steve Rosenthal and Union 2020. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Steve, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? You've been on the show before, so we've gone through you know, your career in some detail, but just for people who didn't catch that, just give a quick background. Sure. I'm Steve Rosenthal. I've been involved in the labor movement and progressive politics for a little over 40 years, believe it or not. I am a former political director at the AFL-CIO. I started uh, an organization in 2004 called ACT, America Coming Together, that is still the largest non-party or presidential candidate national voter mobilization in the country. I've run lots of nonprofit organizations over the last few years and currently spearheading an effort that we're calling Together America, which is an offshoot of uh, Union 2020, a program that we ran in a bunch of the battleground states for the 2020 election aimed at mobilizing former union members and voters who model to be uh, union supporters. Should people in the progressive ecosystem be taking a victory lap after what happened in 2020, or did we fall short of what we wanted to do? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly a victory lap from the standpoint that we elected Joe Biden and defeated Trump. And, you know, in terms of the magnitude of importance, the level of importance of the number one mission in 2020, defeating Trump was at the top of everybody's list as well. It should be because of the threat that he posed, not just to our democracy, but to the world. That's a huge win. And the fact that 81 million Americans voted for Biden, which is the largest number of votes any candidate has gotten for president in the history of the country is extraordinary and has to be viewed as a win. The expectations were much greater down ballot for, you know, in Senate races and congressional races, uh, state legislature and so on. And from that standpoint, it was a, you know, it was a very, very tough election. You know, I believe getting to the root cause and understanding what it's going to take for Democrats to restore their strength with working people and, and mobilizing voters of color and suburban voters, that what now could be essentially the core of a majority going forward is going to be really 
key for the next several months and going into the 2022 election. You mentioned the root cause. What do you think is the root problem? I think that the, the root problem is that Democrats have to show that they can produce, that they can win, and that they and that they really are on the side of average Americans. That's why I think the next several months are so important and why, you know, the filibuster vote, filibuster in the Senate is is so important. Because the bottom line is that Biden ran on a really popular agenda, an agenda that, as I said, attracted 81 million people, you know, a huge number of people certainly voting to stop Trump. But the bottom line was everything from from raising the minimum wage to more rights for workers to reform of voting laws to immigration to criminal justice reform, you name it, the agenda that uh, Biden ran on is an extremely popular agenda. But that then means that Democrats need to score victories on those issues and to show working people that they can average voters that they can deliver. That gets to the, the core of the problem right now is that if we end up uh, allowing McConnell and the extremists in the Senate to block everything that Biden and the Democrats want to get done, you know, we're doomed as a country and as a party. So um, we really need to get to the root problem, which is the filibuster in the Senate. It looks like we can get some things done through reconciliation, like a pretty big COVID bill, but it is the 60 vote margin in the Senate that's the hurdle for so many things that we'd like to get done, right? And that's where the filibuster is the problem. The problem also is to change that rule, we need a majority voting to change the rule. And we don't have every senator with us, notably uh, West Virginia and Arizona senators, Manchin and Cinema. I think a lot of people have just decided, okay, it's over since they've made strong statements. Why do you think it's not over? I think it was Yogi Berra who said it ain't over till it's over. It ain't over until we say it's over <laughs> and it's not over. With Manchin and Cinema, there, there need to be campaigns in their state to show them that people really do support these issues and support this agenda. I don't believe that a majority of West Virginians are opposed to a $15 minimum wage. I don't believe that a majority of West Virginians are opposed to, for example, the, the PRO Act, the legislation that's pending before Congress that will make it easier for workers to form unions. I don't believe a majority of West Virginians are opposed to the reforms that the Democrats want to try to pass on election law right now. I think that it's a matter of beginning to really talk to voters in Arizona and in West Virginia, explain to them where their senators are and what they're doing and and how they're you know, opposing some things that average people afford. It's an uphill slog. There's no question about that to get them. And in West Virginia, for example, yeah, it's a tough state. There's no question. And Trump won it, I don't know, by 20 some odd points. But Manchin is basically in the position that Trump liked to say he was in before, which was that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and he would still get reelected. And I think that's essentially the case for for Manchin too. So, so the bottom line is really um, not embarrassing them, not making it tougher for them from the standpoint that you're going to open the door for a Republican to get elected in their states, but to really put a spotlight on the issues that they're opposing and to begin to show them that the majority of voters in their state are not where they are. And I, I'd also say there, there could be some middle ground on this. There could be something like we're not going to allow the filibuster to be used on voting rights issues or two or three other issues. Or we're going to say something like we'll put a moratorium on it for one year uh, because of COVID. There's also some proposals to make the filibuster harder. You have to be present. Take it back to the filibuster of the 60s or something where you have to actually talk to keep to sustain it. Maybe. Yeah. And maybe another thing is to say that the majority has five get out of jail free cards five times over the, the course of the uh, Congress where they can ignore the filibuster. There are things to do to provide some face saving for them, but also to underscore the fact that the position they're taking is just untenable. From the standpoint that one or two senators 
uh, can block the entire Democratic majority from moving a critical agenda. And frankly, then allowing the Republicans to, to take charge again of Congress in 2022. We can't let that happen. One of the things that I've observed, and I don't know how right it is, but it feels to me like when we win the presidency, we stop campaigning in a certain sense. When Trump won, he declared he was running for re-election. He continued to build his list. He continued to have an active campaign. When he lost just now, he basically said he's still running and he's still raising money. Are we doing enough after wins as a Democratic Party to fight for the progress we need to make after winning and to prepare for the next election? Uh, no, we're not doing enough. And, and no, we never do. When Obama got elected in 08, he had built essentially a huge national organization supporting his candidacy. And then instead of building on it, you know, uh, Obama for America, which became Organizing for America, instead of, you know, integrating it into the party and, and building real infrastructure to create a year-round legislative political mobilization, he instead allowed what I would call kind of Washington insiders like, uh, like Rahm Emanuel to take control of the agenda and the strategy. And they, they, what they basically said is, well, we're just going to work with Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi and try to make sure we can deliver the votes that they need. So they, they played an inside Washington game instead of a national political mobilization game uh, to move their agenda. I think it seems so far that Biden is approaching this a little differently. They've already announced, I think they're going to do something called Build Back Together or Building Back Together or something like that, which is a national mobilization aimed at moving his agenda. To me, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take that and progressive allies doing the kind of year-round work. This is something that, you know, is always a problem, which is we generate resources to run campaigns, but when the campaigns end, so does our resource flow, money. And as a result, even though intellectually we know that voters hate it, when we only talk to them around election time and try to get them engaged, that they really want to be heard from year round and want to engage with us year round on issues. But we never get the resources to build the kind of organizations that do that. And it's a dilemma. And frankly, part of it is the Democratic donor community, both individual donors and institutional donors, that don't recognize the need to sustain an even distribution of of money so that it doesn't just flow into the last month of the campaign, but instead build something more permanent. If you think about progressive organizing writ large across the whole country, across different, what are we doing right? And what are we doing wrong? What we're doing right is a recognition that grassroots contacts, person-to-person contacts matter more. When I started doing this work, you know, decades ago, the, fir- the first congressional campaign that, that I worked on in 1980, we got into a battle royale because the campaign manager and the candidate It was a suburban New York district. The campaign manager and the candidate wanted to invest everything in TV. And I was saying, we're in the New York media market. It's really expensive. We need to be going door to door and talking to voters. I've been having that fight for over 40 years. The good news is that there's a much greater recognition on the part of the political community now, even in national campaigns, that we need to be communicating with voters one-on-one, that, you know, person-to-person contact individuals, now we call it relational organizing. The fact is getting people to use their social networks to communicate with each other is way more valuable than TV ads or digital ads or other forms of communication. So so part of what we're doing right is this recognition that we need to be doing more of that. And frankly, one of the problems in 2020 was because of the coronavirus, we weren't able to get on the doors and, and do that kind of uh, retail campaigning that we've gotten good at. And it's interesting to me because when we did it at the AFL-CIO, when I was the political director there in the mid-90s, it started out as labor to labor, and then we started doing labor to neighbor. 
it was fairly innovative. But frankly, you know, I've been fond of pointing out that the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, part of the, you know, merged AFL and CIO in the 1940s started doing this kind of organizing. So it's not anything new. But this whole notion of getting out and talking to people is right. What we're doing wrong is not recognizing enough that affinity matters, that you can't just bombard people with personal contacts from people or organizations they have no relationship with. It was interesting. We, we, we did some focus groups recently with SEIU with African-American and Latino voters who voted in 2020 and were eligible to vote, but didn't vote in 2016 or 2018. And part of what was interesting about 2020 was that they were saying things like, I kept getting texts from Mary. Mary texted me like 30 times. And it got to the point where at first it was kind of annoying, but then she was like checking up and making sure that I knew where I had to vote early and what the times were. And it was kind of cool. Whatever organization was doing that, recognized that just getting a bunch of people from out of state texting at somebody, telling them how important it was to vote, was not going to matter. But they essentially jerry-rigged a system to get somebody to contact the same person over and over again and essentially developed a relationship with them, a two-way relationship. We did a project uh, in the Midwest we identified working with a group of unions, uh, almost a half million former union members. Uh, and we found out that, and then another uh, one and a half million uh, voters who model to be like union members and support unions. And what we found in research that we did was that 70% of them had a high regard for unions. Two thirds of them said that they trust unions as a reliable source of information on issues and candidates. And two thirds of them told us they were looking for a new source of information that they could trust. So when you connect those dots, they like unions, they trust unions, and they're looking for a new source of information. It made perfect sense for us to fill a void and to begin to contact them and communicate with them one-on-one from an organization that they liked and respected. And we ended up getting 72% of them. They were all all white, uh, working class. They were in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And we ended up getting 72% of them to vote for Biden. So that's pretty extraordinary. And it shows the power of this kind of... And we, we started early. We started communicating with them on COVID resources and on, you know, the unions in general and worker issues. And then we switched into mostly positive communications about Biden, and it really paid off. And that's your Union 2020 project that that you're talking about there. Correct. How did you pull that together? Tell me about the idea. You had to raise millions of dollars. What was the process of launching that and making it happen? I work with a woman named Jenna Fulmer. We've worked together for 15 years. She and I started talking about this right after the... 2016 election, it's been clear that the union share of the vote has declined pretty dramatically in states. And one of the main reasons uh, Secretary Clinton lost Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania was because of both the decline in the share of the union vote and a smaller percentage of union members voting for for Secretary Clinton. She got, you know, roughly 53% of the union household vote, where it should be, you know, 62 to 65 high watermark around 67% for a Democratic presidential candidate. So when you think about the fact that, you know, in a state like Michigan, where about 24% of the votes come from union households, and if 65% of them are voting Democratic versus 53% voting Democratic, you're losing a few hundred thousand votes. In a state that's coming down to far less than that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and if you think about when I was the political director at the AFL-CIO, 43% of the votes in Michigan came from union households. Now it's down to about 24%. So so the union pie has gotten smaller and the share of the union vote for the Democrats has gotten smaller. And Jenna and I started to kick it around and said, well, you know, what can we do to rebuild it? Short of organizing 5 million more workers into unions, 
we thought, well, just because we've lost these union members from unions doesn't mean we've necessarily lost them as voters. And we started to talk to unions about, well, let's take a look at your former members. Uh, What if we matched your current membership file with your file going back 10 years and created a database of all of these former members and began to communicate with them as if they were still in unions? Let's first do some testing to see where they stand on unions. If they, these are people who might have changed jobs, so they lost their union because of that. They might have retired. Their plant might have closed. Uh, they might have lost collective bargaining, like in Wisconsin when they eliminated public uh, sector uh, collective bargaining. So for lots of different we- reasons, these folks fell out of unions. And we started to think, well, just because they're not in the union anymore, might they still be supporters? So we we got six unions, uh, AFSCME, NEA, AFT, SEIU, the Teamsters, and CWA to agree to match their old membership files with their current files and to provide us with uh, all of the former members. And we built at Catalyst a file of uh, 480,000 former members in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. I, I think I left out Minnesota when I mentioned this earlier. Also a close state, yeah. Yeah, a state that we anticipated would be close. Um, then we built a model at Catalyst that was aimed at identifying on a score of zero to 100, the likelihood that uh, every voter would vote on care about uh, unions and union issues. And when we applied that model to the voter files in those states, we really identified about four and a half million more voters, but we only had the budget to communicate with about a million and a half more of them these are um, white voters. We weeded out all the strong Democrats and all the strong Republicans. We only went for folks who were 30 to 80 percent on a partisanship score. And then we looked at people who scored 65 percent or higher on this union support model. So we didn't go for the low hanging fruit. We went for, you know, tougher, tougher voters. And in fact, as I said, after a full-scale communications plan, we you know we raised about six million dollars, and with the help mostly of labor unions and a little bit of help from uh, from Michael Bloomberg, we raised about six million dollars, and as I said, got seventy-two percent of them to vote uh, for Biden. So it, it just reinforces and you know proves that when we communicate with these folks on issues they care about from an organization they relate to and do it in an ongoing way, starting early, we can win their votes. Did you set aside any like random subset to be able to compare those you treated with those you didn't? Yeah, I mean, there's there were, as I said, there were about four and a half million who fit the model, and we communicated with about a million and a half of them. So there's three million more of them that it's easy to compare as a control group to... Do you have results on like... Well, we we won't until the voter files are back in all those states and we can do like a more detailed voter file analysis. Um, but w- what we did was we we used lake research and change research to, to poll them pretty regularly and to do focus groups and dial sessions. And we got a pretty good sense. The first poll we did was in December of 2019. And at that point, Biden wasn't the nominee. So we were asking the generic any Democrat versus Trump. And these folks were at about 60% for Biden at that point, for the Democrat at that point, which was pretty good. But when I, as I said before, when you think that these union voters normally are 63 to 65%, we took a look at it and said, okay, they're at 60% for the Democrat right now. Let's set the goal of trying to get them to about 65% for whoever the Democratic nominee is. And as I said, we moved it to 72. So Enormous success on that front. We'll we'll know more once we get into the voter files. Is it your sense that that made the difference? Like so many things make the difference, right? You can point when when things are close, but yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, you know, I'm not going to claim that we delivered Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania for Joe Biden, but you know, in in any election that is this close, if you just do the math on, well, this group of voters was at sixty percent support. Uh, for the Democrat in December, and we moved it to 72%. Take the, the number of voters that you communicated with 
uh, do the math on what that means if they had voted 60% for Biden versus 72%, and then look at the margin that he won those states by. Yeah, too many organizations do this, and I've never been one to do it. It's complicated because lots of people are pushing in the same direction alongside you, right? Yeah, right. And as somebody high up in the Biden world said to me when they were explained this program, they said, look, when you win these states by as small a margin as we did, every bit of this stuff made the difference, you know? So it's got to be fulfilling to be in the middle of that, to feel like you're using your time on such a pivotal part of the election, really focused on what may make the difference as you're doing it. Yeah. And and honestly, you know, look, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, now Georgia, Arizona are going to decide the 2024 presidency as well. Two or three of them have key Senate races next year, too. So we need ongoing stuff like this in these states. We're in the process now. We just did focus groups uh, with these voters looking at 20 at the 2022 election uh, with these modeled union supporters in these states. And it's clear if we just lay down now and don't do anything until we get close to the 2022 election, or then into 2024, we'll lose. We really have to do this work. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about these focus groups that we did, which were pretty amazing. I'm just looking for some notes, but go ahead. We'll keep talking in the meantime. Tell me about the difference between raising money in the, you know, with a presidential campaign in the offing and raising money post-election away from the midterm. Is it hard now for you to find the same kind of funding to keep a program going? You said you kind of are moving forward with something called Together America. Is it a challenge? I mean, if anyone can do it, you you would be in the middle of it. But this The story I tell about this is that when I became the political director at the AFL-CIO, the plan that I wrote up was called Labor 96. I became the political director at the very end of 95. So it's called Labor 96, Building to Win, Building to Last. And I went to see Jerry McEntee, who was the president of AFSCME, and a made, you know, the chair of the AFL-CIO political committee and a major, major political player in democratic politics. And I went to see McEntee to roll out the plan for him. And I said, Jerry, we're going to call it Building to Win, Building to Last because we're going to invest in winning the election, but we're going to build permanent infrastructure and we're going to communicate with union members year round so that when we get then into the 98 election, you know, we'll, we'll have been talking to them for two years, you know, for two years. And he listened to me and he said, Steve, that's the most brilliant thing I've ever heard. That is absolutely brilliant. And he said, you know, every two years, somebody comes in with the, the same brilliant plan. And every two years, I tell them how brilliant it is. But then I also tell them if they can figure out how to get the funding for it, they're much better off than anybody who's come before them. So go ahead, go for it, partner. And he was right. I mean, basically what happened was we generated the money for election times, but in between the program really fell off. That's what happens. It's really difficult. And we are, we've started already, as I said, we just did focus groups that showed us. It's really interesting because... What's happening right now is voters are fed up with gridlock. They're fed up with both parties. They don't blame McConnell and the Senate Republicans for nothing happening. They blame them both. These these voters that I'm talking, that we're talking about, these white working class voters in these states, they basically say, we just need to get shit done and these guys can't get it done. If one party's for it, the other is against it. Uh, And they don't hold either the Democrats or the Republicans in higher esteem. They think they're both guilty, number one. Number two, they're fed up with the news, and not because they think it's fake news. They're fed up with the news because they think it's biased news. What they tell us is that they, they don't know where to go to get real news anymore. And it is interesting because you'll hear people in these focus groups say things like, well, I, I watch Fox News and CNN, and I heard the same story reported by both, and you would have thought you were listening to two completely different stories. They don't report the news, as one, one person put it in the groups, the way Walter Cronkite did. Several people then said, yeah, where's 
that type of news. So, so w- one of the things that you know we're using to try to get people to understand the importance of this is that when we have an organization that they trust, they trust us on worker issues, on workplace issues. They're not getting the information right now about Biden and what all that he's done. And he's done a lot already for workers, for union members. They're not getting that information and they're not trusting information when they're seeing it in other places. It's not so much creating new media, which is what some Democrats are trying to do. You know, oh, we're going to create, you know, there are Republican fake groups out there. So we're going to create Democratic fake groups and we're going to start to uh, provide them with uh, Democratic news. Now, it's a matter of progressive organizations, labor unions, communicating with their members and these other workers again and giving them information from a source that they trust. We don't need to build something new to do it. We've got vehicles to do it right now. What is your plan going forward into this new year? What are you going to try? Are you going to just, is it basically an extension of what you were doing in the fall or is there something different about it? What we're doing is basically Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio now because of the Senate race there in 2022, perhaps North Carolina and Arizona, Georgia and Arizona. We are in the process of beginning to talk to folks about raising money to create um, kind of a year-round communication scheme with these voters where we'll provide them with newsletters uh, by mail and online. Uh, We'll provide them with texts on a regular basis. We found mail to be enormously successful with these voters last cycle. Now, maybe it was because of the pandemic and they were home a lot of them were home. Maybe it was because other people weren't doing mail yet at that point, but we had extraordinary success sending information by mail. And we're now in the process of putting together plans in all these states to start to build a network uh, communicating with folks and then have them use their social networks uh, to distribute this stuff further. In 2007, eight, a lot of unions helped Obama win the nomination, even though Hillary had a lot also. And he made some promises ab- about what sort of moves he would make. And I think ran afoul of some of the realities once he was in office or chose other priorities like healthcare, good things. But things like minimum wage. Employee Free Choice Act. Right. Didn't happen. Yeah. Right. Do you see something different now with Biden? What do you see going on with Biden and the relationship of the federal government to unions? Yeah, the Biden administration to this point and Biden himself to this point is the most pro-union president we've seen, I think, ever. I mean, people say, well, since FDR, but in fact, what Biden has been doing, it goes beyond what FDR did. Day one, he fired the anti worker general counsel at the NLRB, uh, which made it very clear the National Labor Relations Board has a huge say over union representation, union organizing, union uh, campaigns. And the general counsel runs the agency. By doing that on day one, Biden made it clear which, which side he was on. The video that he put out around the uh, Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who are organizing right now, didn't just encourage workers to join unions. It said that the law of the land, the law of America, the National Labor Relations Act, is designed to urge workers to join unions. And it's been bastardized over the years to make it impossible for workers to organize. So what we're seeing from Biden, both in terms of appointments that he's made, statements that he's made, And the agenda that he's setting to this point is extraordinary and goes way beyond what we've seen from Democratic presidents before. The the appointment of Marty Walsh as Secretary of Labor, a Democratic president hasn't appointed a union leader to be Secretary of Labor since 1913. There have been two Republicans who appointed union officials to be labor secretaries 
in the 70s. Nixon and Ford both did. A Democratic president hasn't appointed a union official to be labor secretary, I'll say it again, since 1913. Uh, so it's very strong statements that Biden is making at this point. I want to spend a minute and just talk about this because there's a PRO Act on the horizon, which is legislation that will make it easier again for workers to join unions. And you mentioned that when uh, Obama got elected, the Employee Free Choice Act was one of the things that unions had hoped for and you know were encouraging the passage of and that Obama embraced. But when he decided to move health care first, it became impossible to do the Employee Free Choice Act and the Democratic votes fell off that we needed. One thing that a, a friend of mine wrote several years ago on the need for changing this law that I think is important for people in the political community to get is this. Right now, 65% of Americans support unions. Gallup has asked this question for decades. It's way up. Um, it's way up. It's never, yeah. it's never been, it, certainly in, in the time that I've been involved in the labor movement, which goes back to 1980, it's never been this high. In some states, it's even higher. You, you have a situation right now where, you know, millions of Americans would vote for uh, and would want to be in a union if they were given the opportunity to do it. The way the law is interpreted right now and the way it's been carried out, it makes it almost impossible for workers to organize. And let me just take a minute and describe what a friend of mine had pointed out several years ago. Right now, the company has such an advantage in an election. If you think about it as if it were a political campaign, think about this. One candidate has the voter list has the file of everybody that's that's going to be allowed to vote. That's the employer. The union doesn't get access to that until the National Labor Relations Board says they can have it, which can take some time. So one side in this campaign gets to communicate with the voters. The other side doesn't yet fully know who all the, all the voters are. One side, the, the employer, gets to hold town hall meetings. And everybody who can vote has to go to those meetings. The other side isn't allowed access to the property, isn't even allowed in the workplace or in the voting place. One side gets to give everybody campaign buttons and encourage them all to wear it. The other side has to struggle to do that. And if you get some people to do it, they can be fired, lose their job for, for showing their support for the union. One side gets to hang signs all over their campaign signs. The other side can't have access to it. The vote usually takes place in one side's campaign headquarters. The other side has to struggle, has to stand in the parking lot and encourage people to vote uh, on their way in. To me, it's like when you think about some of this stuff in political terms, the way a campaign would be run, you know, one side fires a supporter and says, if the rest of you vote for my opponent, you're all going to lose your jobs. The other side has no access to do that kind of stuff. So you can imagine, you know, the chilling effect that has and how tough it is for unions to win these elections. And, you know, we're hoping that more politicians will understand that if they had to run their elections under the same rules that unions do to try to win representation, not many of them would ever win elections ever. So what does the PRO Act say? What will it change? It basically changes all of that. In other words, it creates a system that imposes stiffer fines and penalties on employers who violate the law. It shortens the time for union elections and makes sure that the employer doesn't interfere in the elections. It, it ensures that there are, that the employer is, is neutral in the elections. It doesn't allow the employer to hold those captive audience meetings where every worker uh, needs to attend. It basically restores the National Labor Relations Act to what it was originally intended to be. And this is what Biden said in his message around Amazon, that workers should have a clear choice, an unfiltered choice in voting uh, yes or no to support a union. Is there any Republican in the House or Senate who will vote for the PRO Act? I think it's four or five at this point, uh, House Republicans who are uh, voting for the bill. There may even be a couple who are, co who are co sponsors not in the Senate. So in the Senate, we would only be able to get this through with the filibuster gone. Is that right? I mean, yeah, there's you some need 60 votes to get it through or 
Yeah, there's some aspects of it which may be able to be done in a second or a third reconciliation bill. Some pieces of it possibly, but you would need to uh, to convince the Democrats based on, a whole, as I was saying earlier, a whole range of things that the Republicans are not doing. You would need to convince them to uh, to not allow it to be filibustered. I'm curious about your thoughts about the sort of progressive organizing ecosystem broadly. I've been tracking it for a few years pretty intensively, at least talking to people who who know more than me. And it seems like there are numerous groups that are local uh, or that are national and have chapters in states. Are we well organized as an organizing community? What should be changed to upgrade how we do this? Well, I don't remember if I used my chopped analogy when I was on your show before, chopped on the Food Network. It's a cooking show and it's a competition. They start with four chefs and they give them a basket and they have them open the basket and there are four ingredients inside. And the first course, they need to make an appetizer using those four ingredients. They cook up an appetizer and the judges decide and one of them gets chopped. And they keep doing this until they're down to two people who compete for the final prize. What I've often said is that we do campaigns like that. We open the basket in a state and we look at what ingredients are in there. We have lots of entrepreneurs who start organizations and we have different things flourishing here and there and other national organizations that have interests in different states and so on. And we open the basket and we try to look inside and see if we can make a meal out of the ingredients that are there. What the other side does is they hire an executive chef who has a recipe book, and then they go out and buy the ingredients they need to make a really fine meal. So the Koch brothers look at a state and they say, we need a gun group here. We need a, uh, a group that's going to focus on Latinos. We need this and we need that. And they organize those, those, they go out and buy those ingredients. It's a different approach. We have a much more small D democratic approach much more entrepreneurial, weirdly. More, entre- <laughs> more <laughs> entrepreneurial, yeah. yeah. But, you know, honestly, I mean, I believe we need plans in each state that identify who the voters are that we need to mobilize. We need to recognize the organizations, indigenous and otherwise, that have relationships with those voters. We need to invest in them year-round. The notion of building permanent infrastructure is now a mantra across the democratic donor community and the notion of doing it year round and not just around elections is a mantra within the democratic donor community. But if you do an inventory of the states, neither of those exist in most states or it's at a very limited supply. We don't do a good job of building systems that hold organizations accountable and provide them with the funding uh, to maintain, it's what we were talking about before, to maintain uh, their communications year-round. I I was involved in a project in Detroit for several elections. The voters in Detroit told us they cared about rats and raccoons. They cared about abandoned buildings. They cared about no lights, street lights, no bulbs in the lights. they had all kinds of local issues that an old-fashioned acorn-like organization going in and helping those voters fix their problems would yield huge participation around election time. But instead, what we do is what we've always done. We wait until you know a month or six weeks before the election, and then we start to try to talk to those voters about how this election will make a difference in their lives. And it it doesn't. There was a time in certain cities and states where we had stronger parties and those parties were more machine-like and they, they did operate in that way and they did provide services way outside of just mobilization for voting. And they had a lot more weight than than they do now. Should should this be happening in the Democratic Party as an organization? I mean, a lot of this stuff is happening outside now with all these little groups. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
I think it can be both, and I think it needs to be both. I mean, we yeah. we found with ACT in 2004, when the three hurricanes in a row came through Florida, we stopped canvassing and we just did hurricane cleanup. And we had the same T-shirts on and the same canvassers, but they were working in the community to help people. When that blew by, when the, when the hurricanes were gone and they went back to canvassing, the response they got was completely different. It was, oh, yeah, you were the guys who were here that helped us with the cleanup. What are we talking about? Oh, yeah, you're for John Kerry? Sure, let me, yeah, I'll, I'll, I get that. Party infrastructure is really important. Rebuilding the Democratic Party so that it connects with people. And I have a piece in, uh, in American Prospect a few weeks ago about organizing going forward. And it basically says, again, the CIO in 1943 figured out that, number one, identify people in the community who look like the community and who live in the community. Number two, have them start to go visit family members and friends and talk about the issues that they care about, not that you care about. Number three, connect their issues to your issues. Number four, go back and keep developing a relationship with them. It's what the parties used to do and what people are now trying to uh, mirror with you know relational organizing and digital organizing, but nothing beats that type of you know really back to where we started this conversation, one-on-one communications. I've talked to a bunch of people who are sort of legendary organizers along the way who work to not political organizing per se, but organizing to further the local aims of communities. They all say very similar things. They echo what you've been saying. You have to make that connection and connect people working together with power, with change. And for some reason, it feels like often we have this divide between the political way we organize and a different kind of organizing. And I think there's people trying to make that change now, as you've talked about. There's a lot of people saying that. I think about like Movement Voter Project or Way to Win or some of these funders that are funding the local groups. And those local groups are trying to do regular organizing, but also do political when the time comes. It feels like something's building. I wonder if there needs to be more top-down planning and thinking as well as ground up. I mean, it seems like you need to connect those. Yeah. No, I think I think that's exactly right. And that's what I was saying before about developing plans in every state, understanding, you know, if there are suburban voters we need to reach, there are urban voters we need to reach, there or a segment of white working class voters we need to reach. You know, how do we get to a majority in each of those states? And what are the vehicles that get us there? Where can the party do it? Where can progressive uh, outside groups do it best? And, you know, how do you divvy up the work? I mean, that's that's what, you know, one of my mentors, Paul Tully, talked about, you know, with the coordinated campaign going back to the early 1990s. I've used an hour of your time, so I'm, I'm going to try to bring it to an end here. It's been really fun. I'm looking forward to 2022 and 2024 with a lot of worry. You know, I feel like that that midterm loss pattern, there's no reason to think that that will change. We could very possibly lose Congress. We already see Trump looking like he'll run again, complaining that he was cheated, getting his people out in revenge. You know, like he still has hundreds of millions of dollars. He still can command attention. And if it's not him, it's DeSantis or somebody else. And the way a two-party system works, one of the two major parties is going to win in 2024. And if things are not going real well, then it tends to be the, the party out of power. And the risk of him coming back or someone like him is just mind-bogglingly scary right now. What should we be doing? I mean, we've been talking about it, but what should we be doing right now to fend off these horrible possibilities? Yeah. Nothing succeeds like success. Get rid of the filibuster. <laughs> you know, organize like we were talking about before in, in West Virginia and Arizona. Get these guys to understand that, you know, the voting rights stuff is front and center right now. That if McConnell and the Republicans continue to block that, will that break the roadblock and allow Manchin and Cinema to say, well, we can't allow this. It's an attack on our democracy. 
we need to remedy the filibuster, as we talked about before, in any two or three or four or five different ways that it's possible. But raising the minimum wage, passing the infrastructure bill, passing voting rights, let people see that Biden is doing the things, he's getting these things done that convinced 81 million Americans to vote for him. If Democrats stand in the way of that happening, then we deserve to lose in 2022 and 2024, because there's an agenda here that's enormously popular. And Biden has the popularity right now to get it done. But we've got to get behind it, galvanize that support and put enough pressure on, unfortunately, on these Democrats to say, we're, you know, we are a country that believes in majority rule. The first time you go outside and try to organize friends as a kid, you learn that majority rules. And it's just not that way in the United States Senate. And that can't stand. Well, I mean, that goes generally under good policy is good politics. Yeah. But there's also one other aspect to it, which is you have to let people know you're doing the good policy. Yeah, it's a really good point. Most of these voters aren't hearing the good things that Biden's done already, all of the enormous good that he's done already. And, you know, that's going to be on us for the next two years to really make sure we develop delivery systems uh, to let people know the very stark differences between uh, Biden and Trump. It's a big honor to talk to you. Is there a question I didn't ask that I should have? No, this has been great, Nathaniel. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate your having me back. Well, I, I appreciate your taking the time. Uh, good luck with uh, what you're doing. And thanks for doing it. Thank you. Good to see you. That was Steve Rosenthal. He's at organizinginc.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.